Hello, this is Aaron, and welcome back to the podcast. My network is a little bit on the fritz today, so I rebooted my router, and hopefully that clears it up. But uh, since this is now back live on YouTube, if we have a network uh, problem, you'll know what happened. I also made a little bit of a pivot, actually, this morning, because I saw a couple articles in the last 24 hours that gave me a new topic for the podcast. So I'm going to ad lib a bit in this one. Uh, but before we get to that, I want to first let you know that the podcast this week is sponsored by New Founding Talent. New Founding is organizing and connecting the people that will rebuild American civilization. And one aspect of this is New Founding's talent program, which has drawn thousands of high caliber professionals seeking to exit woke organizations and businesses in order to work with like-minded colleagues. And so this network includes executives who've grown companies to over $500 million in annual revenue, uh, all the way to early career engineers and co-founders who are looking to join a dynamic founding team. So if you're interested in finding aligned work or are in good mission aligned people uh, for kind of conservative America, check out New Founding Talent. That's at newfounding.com slash talent. That's newfounding.com slash talent. And one of the articles that I saw, I'm actually not quite even sure what the date was, but uh, the subject himself actually tweeted it. That's where I found it. It was in The Guardian, and it was basically about how influencers are going to become more important or as important in conservative politics going forward uh, as columnist and establishment figures did in the past. And they lead off with this guy, Jack Posobiec. Uh, if you don't know Jack, you can follow him on, on Twitter. It's uh, P-O-S-O-B-I-E-C, I believe. And I think that's also his Twitter address. And uh, he's got something like 2 million followers, very well-known guy going back years. But here's what they have to say about, about that. Quote, he has a platform that most politicians would envy, but Jack Posobiec is not to be found on America's major TV networks or in its newspapers. He is among a cadre of online influencers who now shape the far right and could help decide the Republican presidential primary race in 2024. Two operatives made the very same prediction, that Posobiec will matter as much to future GOP voters as Washington Post columnist George Will did to Republicans of a generation ago, political journalist David Weigel wrote in a semaphore newsletter last week, unquote. So as you can get from the phrase far right and from the fact that this appeared in The Guardian, obviously they are deeply hostile towards these figures. And the, really, this is just another manifestation of the rise of the influencer class in general. And it's undoubtedly the case that there are a number of these big name people who have become highly influential in especially populist right wing circles. There's a lot of influence going back to the 2016 election cycle, still growing strong today. So why have these influencers come to the fore? And there are a couple of reasons. One is technology and the internet, which I think is the normal thing people talk about. The gatekeeping organizations no longer have the ability to exclude people from the discourse. It used to be in the pre-internet era, even the pre-social media era, that if you really wanted to get your word out, you had to get on TV, you had to get published in a newspaper, you had to have access to some legacy media platform of which there weren't that many, and 
these legacy media people could then apply gatekeeping criteria and keep out the people they didn't like. And this is one of the key ways that they created this you know, false consensus. They were able to essentially create this aura of consensus around things because people who did not share that point of view were excluded. We certainly saw this with the Iraq war, for example, you know, where if, if you were someone who opposed invading Iraq 20 years ago, well, you were probably not going to be getting on the Fox News. You probably weren't even going to be getting on CNN. Those voices may not have been completely excluded, but they were not given billing, treated as legitimate, etc. And uh, Pat Buchanan actually had to go found a magazine uh, to get his anti-war uh, message out, and that was the American conservative. So the internet was around at that point in time, but still, essentially, when these dissident voices wanted to, ha to, to try to get the word out, they basically had to start a magazine. So in order to start a magazine, you have to know something about magazines, how to publish them, you have to have a lot of money to get going, etc. Well, fast forward to today, and what we see is the, the, the media, the legacy media in many ways, still engage in this sort of consensus-making mechanism, but they can no longer stop the dissident voices from building their own platforms on social media. So today, if you don't agree with what's in the main publications, you simply, you know, start a blog, start a Substack newsletter, get on Twitter, get on Instagram, get on TikTok, and... You know, if the algorithms favor you, if you make the right network connections, if your content is good, if you got the right style, if a lot of things come together, you can build a big platform that actually does reach people and has some degree of influence. Now, for the average person, you can't take advantage of this because the average person can't build enough traction in order to really get their voice heard above the fray. But for people like Posobiec, who've been able to build massive platforms over multiple years, They've really been able to do it. And we see this going, you know, we went back to the Iraq war, and now we got the Ukraine war. And again, when it comes to Ukraine, there is essentially a bipartisan consensus in which pretty much every major person agrees that we should go maximalist in our support of Ukraine versus the, so uh, versus, so say, the Soviet Union. Basically, sort of what it is, sort of like Russia and Putin and Putin's, you know, invasion of the country. And yet there are still a significant, just like with the Iraq war, there is a significant, there are a significant number of people who do not want us to get involved in that conflict, think we should be much less involved with it. They aren't necessarily getting invited on TV as much, but they're able to create this online movement and they're able to have influence and even have influence on politicians. So there was just a little kerfuffle about Ron DeSantis making some speech about how he was not totally bought in to uh, our approach to Ukraine. And I think it's fair to say his positions were influenced by the online discourse. And of course, it's not just conservatives. The online left activist class has an enormous influence, massively more influential than any conservative influencers, for example. It could be, of course, it, it's it's all kinds of influence. This, this technology is not about... Uh, just conservatives or anyone else. It, it's about everybody. It's about makeup bloggers. It's about musicians. Uh, these new sites and new algorithms and new technologies enable people to get the word out in a way they could before. We couldn't before in certain select cases. It's still a very small minority uh, who are able to do this, but it does do it. The second thing, though, 
that doesn't get as much press is really the failure of the incumbent class. And it's not even just that they're, they're bad or they got it wrong, although clearly go back to Iraq. You know, the people uh, who backed that Iraq war were categorically wrong. They led to probably close to half a million people dead in Iraq. The complete, almost total destruction of one of the world's most ancient Christian communities and just horrible chaos, which of course led to, you know, ISIS and so all this stuff is downstream. What, what's going on in Libya right now is downstream from Iraq. If we hadn't invaded Iraq, uh, there probably would not be open slave markets in Libya right now. We wouldn't have all these problems because we wouldn't have invaded Libya. And so Iraq had so much pervasively negative, negative influence in the world. And of course, the people who promoted it, by and large, are still bankable. They're completely still bankable. They've had absolutely no consequences for uh, what they did, you know, with very, very rare exceptions. And so, uh, you know, you can be completely wrong, but as long as you follow the conventional wisdom, as long as you're aligned with influential institutions and stakeholders and all that stuff, you can basically be as wrong as you want and suffer no consequences in this world. And, and that's kind of one angle, and, and that, that, that's a legitimate angle. You know, basic failure in the incumbent class. But the second one is, is the way, again, that positions that are supported by a very influential, uh, you know, segment of the population, maybe a majority, if not a majority, certainly a very, very sizable uh, minority, you know, 80 million people or whatever, something like that, let's just say, for example, that they're just sort of systematically excluded from these organizations. So again, if you go to the New York Times, which employs several quote-unquote conservative columnists, who do they employ? Well, one is Ross Douthat. And Ross is, uh, I think, the closest thing they've got to someone who's aligned with the, you know, the way the average conservative kind of thinks. And in a sense, he sort of, to the extent that he can, he, within the New York Times uh, infrastructure, sort of reps that position in a number of ways. And so, you know, he's sort of aligned. I call him sort of aligned with, with the Republicans. I mean, I'm sure a lot of people would disagree with that, kind of Republican voting base. I'm sure a lot of people would disagree with that, but certainly best. Then you've got David Brooks, right, who writes columns about, you know, the dissidents trying to save evangelicalism from themselves, which, of course, is a very small minority of people, many of whom are his personal buddies and that sort of thing. Uh, you know, he certainly doesn't represent the conservative base. They've got Brett Stevens, who's basically just, you know, a very hardcore neocon, conservative, not really conservative in any sense. He's just flat out hardcore neocon, and that's why he's there. And now they just hired David French. So David French definitely has a big following. There are a lot of people who like David French, but again, there's a lot of people who don't like David French, and the people who are like not on board with the French don't have a representative there. And so you see these institutions have hired people who are extraordinarily unrepresentative of the concerns of the average person. Again, that's one reason Donald Trump was able to get elected in 2016. He spoke to the concerns of people whose positions had been systematically excluded, you know, from the public square. He spoke to people who wanted less immigration, uh, for example, which basically the whole conservative Inc. infrastructure is very pro-immigration. He's like, well, actually, Iraq was a bad idea. 
hard to believe, you know, but he was really the first guy sort of said that it was controversial at the time. And he's like, well, we need to rethink these trade deals. And, you know, you can say that those are good positions. You can say they're bad positions, but they're certainly positions and concerns held by large numbers of people. But those positions and concerns have been systematically marginalized and excluded from debate. And again, you go look at who did Christianity Today hire to be their editor-in-chief, Russell Moore. Again, Russell Moore has a real constituency. On the other hand, here's a guy who basically, you know, career you know, for the past four years was bashing 80% of the evangelicals who voted for Trump. So the guy you pick as the editor-in-chief of your flagship magazine is a guy who has explicitly and viciously criticized the vast majority of the evangelicals. And so you start to see that these, these institutions have sort of been, uh, you know, staffed by people who don't necessarily represent the concerns of the base. And, you know, then these people sort of all, you know, uh, scratch each other's back in a sense. They, they, they sort of defend each other. You rarely see them critiquing each other in serious ways. Although I will say David French gives plenty of criticism. So, you know, he's certainly not someone who's been immune from criticism. Uh, but, you know, there aren't a lot of people in establishment positions, you know, in these major positions who are criticizing Russell Moore. Uh, you know, I don't necessarily see a lot of that. And so you staff your, your environments with very unrepresentative people. They are uh, united around a certain set of positions, whether that be the Iraq war or, you know, whatever it might be. And dissident positions, if you don't hold to those positions, you're not going get, get to a, get a hearing. And so there's this mass resentment. And so you, you connect that with the, you know, you know, the new technologies and you get the influencer class. And that is basically why there's an influencer class. Hey, guess what? I'm an influencer. Okay. I, I don't think of myself that way. I, I don't want to, you know, I, I, so I say, I, Aaron, you're a journalist. Well, I don't really think of myself as a journalist. I didn't go to journalism school. I never worked for a newspaper. There's a lot of things, but like at the end of the day, I say like, I'm an influencer. And why do I have an audience? I have an audience because, in a sense, the incumbents uh, were like missing the ball on some points. But missing the ball in terms of they're just things that they got factually incorrect, topics that they weren't addressing, concern, and then also the concerns they weren't addressing, you know, uh, things of that nature. And so, in a sense, if the establishment had been doing its job, uh, people like me would necessarily have a job. And frankly, as I said, you know, I've been very honest. I actually did not want to do what I'm doing right now. This is was not my first choice. I really felt essentially almost compelled and obligated to start writing my newsletter on Christian men's topics. I'm like, this is a huge, important area where there are basically no incumbents who are addressing it in a manner while all these, again, secular influencers uh, are walking away with the audience. So we have to engage. And that's really how, you know, I got involved in it. Frankly, I would have loved to have found someone to just take all of my research. I would just love to print out, you know, the books plus worth of all the research and notes and everything I put together, just, just hand it to someone and say, hey, would you please take this on? I don't really want to do it, but I never had anybody you know, to give it to. And so here I am. Uh, so, but, that, but that's reality. And so, it's that combination of technology, it's a combination of incumbent failure, and it's uh, also you know, the way that certain concerns, legitimate concerns, of large segments of the population are not being addressed. So you add that together, it's a recipe for influencers. Now, that seems to be very critical of the establishment class, which it sort of is, but I think we also need to turn the mirror around 
and take a look at the influencer class. As I've said multiple times before, the incentive structure for influencers and sort of independent online people are extremely bad. And the Guardian article, which again is very hostile, you expect an article like that to be very hostile, really points some of this out. The truth is, I think the title is something like, it's all about trolling. That's what gets rewarded online. Trolling, negative takes, which just some study that, uh, this isn't just about influencers, but like the more negative words you have in a headline, the more likely you are to get clicks. And so just like in, for example, the climate change discussion, if you're like a voice who's not part of the, you know, kind of establishment mainstream consensus, and you want to carve out a name for yourselves, how do you do that? You become more extreme. You're like, hey, we need to forcibly evacuate Miami. We need to uh, uh, just ban SUVs right now. You take the more extreme position because you need to become more extreme in order to sort of punch through and get the audience. And this sort of, the more extreme takes, the trolls, the owning the libs in the sense of the conservative uh, uh, influencer class, this is what really drives traffic. And so what happens is, you know, when you're monetizing off of the traffic that you get, traffic becomes king, the algorithm becomes king. And if you, you know, you will find yourself carried out to sea very quickly and you start, you know, responding very much to that incentive structure in becoming someone who's, you know, maybe that you didn't necessarily want to be, but you're like, this is what I got to be. Again, it, it rewards trollish behavior. It rewards criticism. It punishes people who want to be substantive. It punishes people who want to say the occasional nice thing about somebody in the establishment class from time to time. Uh, and, and there's just a lot of negative incentives in the space. And then there's also some concerns that are a bit, call it, um, you know, call it uh, ethical concerns, uh, you might say, because if you're an influencer, how do you make money? So if you're a columnist for the New York Times, you make money uh, through a variety of ways. You get paid by the New York Times. Uh, and I don't know to what extent Times columnists do this, but you can get paid to speak to people. Uh, you know, maybe you've got a fellowship somewhere. So there are a lot of different ways to make money. So take a guy like Jonah Goldberg. Uh, I've used this example many times. Jonah, Berg, Joel, Jonah Goldberg has essentially gotten rich inside the system. He runs the dispatch, which appears to be a very successful entity. At the same time, he has a fellowship at AEI that was a, a endowed to the tune of $2.3 million by a hedge fund guy. So that's probably spinning off a six-figure income for him right there. You know, he gets paid good coin to speak to people. And he's probably got other sources of income as well, book deals, et cetera. So these guys have all these traditional ways that they make money inside the system. Well, if you're not inside the system, how do you make money? Well, you make money through advertising or you make money through different ways. So there's ways to make money. But the, the structures are, um, you know, often uh, often more opaque. It's, it's opaque for the other people too. And sometimes they lead people to do things that they probably should have had more disclosure about. And so when you monetize your influence, I think in some respects you have to be transparent about the way that you're doing it. And so again, I'm all in favor of monetization. I want influencers uh, to make a ton of money. <laughs> I would like for myself to, to be able to make a living uh, doing this. So you, have to, you have to monetize. And so the way that you monetize though is important. So the, there's another article in the Washington Post 
about some of these influencers. And it was an article about how this, uh, you know, Chinese billionaire owned the social media site Getter. And I'm not sure if you're familiar with Getter, but it's one of the many Twitter alternative type sites that sprung up, uh, you know, over the last few years. There was Getter, there's True Social, there's Gab. There's a bunch of them. They all have a few million users, probably far fewer than that, active users. And this article uh, suggested, and, you know, I, I assume it's probably true, that a number of these influencers were getting very large payments from Getter in order to promote the product. So uh, Bannon apparently got 50 grand. Charlie Kirk, uh, the guy from Turning Points USA, got 18,000. I'm looking here. 15,000 uh, went to Dinesh D'Souza, Jack Basobic, uh, this British guy, Tommy Robinson. You know, Diamond and Silk got money, if you know them. Andy No. Uh, all these kinds of people got money in order to promote True Social. And you know what? It's actually completely appropriate to do sponsorships and paid promotions. So if somebody wants to sponsor this podcast, if you want to sponsor my newsletter, you can, you know, reach out and we can talk about what that might look like because I'm happy to accept some kind of advertising. I'm, I've kind of been experimenting with that a little bit just to see how readers react, just to see how it does, just to, to see what's going on. But ultimately, there's nothing wrong with sponsorship. But the key is you have to actually disclose that you are getting sponsored. You can't just say, oh, go check out Getter, go check out this. And at the same time, you're getting paid for that. But you're not actually like letting the people that you're recommending this uh, thing to know that, oh, by the way, I got paid for this. And so I didn't necessarily, uh, I, I can't speak precisely to all of these people, but I do think there's a risk that when it comes to things like monetization, you can get it wrong by simply not being transparent uh, about things there. So I'll also put a link, I'll put a link to the Guardian article and to this article in the piece. And so uh, as, as someone who's kind of in the influencer world, I, I would like to see uh, uh, th this group of people um, be able to avoid the incentive structures of the influencer model in order to, you know, not just turn into trolls. And that's why I've said, I like to make sure that I'm always writing positive, constructive articles in addition to critical takes, because the reality is critical takes sell the most. If I write some positive article about something, if I write some, here's some ideas, constructive ideas for your life, just be quite honest. I get a lot less traffic off of those, they're less likely to go viral. They're less likely to get the clicks and the shares because people don't want that. You know, the, re the reality is people are more interested in the fray than they are in for constructed, uh, you know, suggestions for their life. It's just kind of reality. Uh, you know, it, it's it's like in the old ad mo advertising model, I said sex sells, right? And so like negativity, trolling, that's what sells. And But nevertheless, I'm like, I'm gonna do this stuff anyway because I don't want just for myself to get anchored into a negative place that takes me in the wrong direction. And I think about that a lot. What am I saying? What am I doing? Et cetera. Now, again, people have to eat. So the reality is when you get into this, this model, just like when you work for a company, a lot of times you end up doing things you'd rather not do. But at the end of the day, because that's reality, right? One of my friends has this great uh, line. He's like, I think this, I think that, but you know what? The market doesn't care what I think. And that's reality. The market doesn't care what I think. The market doesn't care if I'm right or wrong. 
the market is going to be what the market's going to be. And so the reality is the market is telling us something and we have to respond to market signals. Uh, we can't ignore those market signals, but we also got to think about, uh, you know, who we want to be and our core values and those sorts of things. And that's why I say it's always good for uh, the influencers to come up with the, the, the core values or the guiding principles. I have guiding principles. Live not by lies. You know, give people deep insight and, in, you know, intelligence that they can't get anywhere else. You know, build up, don't just tear down. Have skin in the game. Pay it forward. These are the sorts of things I laid out as guiding principles that, and I got a few other things in there, to help anchor me in what I'm doing. And, you know, I get feedback when people think I've gotten it wrong. I've gotten some negative feedback. And sometimes I try to take it to a position. I'm like, is this really what I want to do? And some of the the worst feedback I've gotten is from when I, when I have an overly negative take towards somebody. And I sort of took, took that to heart and I said, you know what? The slamming these people, uh, it, it's really like not the MO that works best for me. It's really not, you know, I don't do it well. Because uh, I try, you know, I try to be too fair. I, it's hard to like just come up with like a really terrible, you know, coming up with like a really tough take on somebody that's actually fair is like hard to do. And since I try to be fair, I don't even write effective uh, hit jobs to to begin with, and that's not what I necessarily want to do. So I'm kind of, you know, I, you know, I haven't done very much of that, but I kind of don't want to do that. So that's the market interacting. I want to do that, and then also I think you know we're just looking at like how we can just be, you know, really transparent and appropriate in financial practices. Uh, because, uh, you know, that's important as well. So I, I've said in one of my newsletters, you know, managing for trust is important. I want to manage for trust. But the reality is, circling back to the beginning, I I do believe we would have had some influencers uh, come up, just like we have new music people come up through YouTube. That's not a failure of the record companies to identify new talent. It's just because there's new technology, there's new channels. Uh, it used to be that you'd go play clubs in all these small towns, and that's how you got noticed. Now you go on on YouTube when you're 13, and all of a sudden you got a record deal and you're you're famous. There is the technological angle to it, but there is a sense in which the incumbents have failed, uh, in which the incumbents have been too isolated from feedback and from the marketplace, and the fact that you know the incumbents have essentially decided not to address certain completely valid concerns of kind of the rank and file. And so if you don't like the influencers, you know, if you're an incumbent, you got to like take stock and say, wow, uh, maybe we should be doing things differently. But anyhow, this is really a model that's here to stay. And so we just have to think about uh, how we operate in it, both as consumers and as producers of commentary. So thank you very much. And I will talk to you next week.